Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, uh, February 27th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports, and uh, we'll have dispatches on the announcement uh, that negotiations between the Russian and Ukrainian governments will begin tomorrow. Demonstrations continue in the Republic of Sudan demanding the restoration of democratic rule. Reports from Guinea-Bissau say uh, that the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, the PAIGC, had its headquarters attacked by armed mask assailants. The major political parties in Kenya are said to have formed an alliance for the upcoming elections. In the second uh, and third hours, uh, we conclude our African American History Month commemorations with a continuing focus on Ella Baker along uh, with uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. These and other features uh, will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back uh, later uh, with more of our program for this week. Thank you. 
baby Tanzani bwana pena kitoko Mubeki kai mone meyo kona tuna Nae badelina Uzani kambia baba yoluka kama kato nelo Uzani bala kame Jeba ola kikai pile ya mosolo pena lopango na nimi na moto
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, a special edition of our program, and that was uh, classic Pan-African music from uh, several uh, sources, uh, including orchestras, uh, African jazz orchestras, uh, Viv, uh, Bakuba, uh, Zaiko, uh, Bella Lupia, all music from the 1970s, classic uh, music uh, from uh, the area now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, right now, we want to uh, move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines from today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story, of course, deals uh, with the current uh, situation in Eastern Europe, uh, the Russian military intervention into Ukraine. And uh, according uh, to uh, reports uh, emanating uh, from uh, that region of the world, uh, talks between the Russian and Ukrainian delegations will begin in the morning on Monday. Uh, That's according to a source uh, given to the TASS uh, news agency earlier today. It's not a postponement. The meeting will begin in the morning. The reason is the Ukrainian delegation's logistics, the sources said. Russian presidential aide Vladimir Medensky, uh, who leads the Russian delegation to the talks, said earlier that an agreement had been reached with the Ukrainian side earlier today uh, to hold talks in Belarus' Gomel region. The Russian delegation has already left Minsk and is heading for the talks venue, which, according to a task source, will not uh, be disclosed. Also, uh, information uh, from uh, the Russian Uh, intervention into Ukraine uh, in response to aggressive statements in the West. Russian President Vladimir Putin has issued orders to introduce what he described as a special service regime in the Russian Army Deterrence Force. Top officials in NATO leading countries uh, have been making aggressive statements against our country. Uh, For this reason, I give orders to the Defense Minister and Chief of the General Staff to introduce a special combat duty regime in Russian's Army Defense Forces. That was according to President Putin. He said this at a meeting with the Defense Minister Sergei Zhogu and Chief of the General Staff Valery Gerasimov uh, in the Kremlin uh, earlier today. Putin stressed that the Western countries were also taking unfriendly actions against Russia in the economic sphere. He said that I am referring to the illegitimate sanctions, which are very well known to everybody. The meeting took place against a backdrop of Russian special military operations in Ukraine, which Moscow began in response to a request for assistance from the leaders of the Donbass republics. The Strategic Deterrence Forces' task is to deter aggression against Russia and its allies, and also to defeat an aggressor in a war by using various types of weapons, including nuclear ones. The Deterrence Forces incorporate strategic offensive force and strategic defense force, the strategic nuclear potential constitutes the backbone of the FO 
SOF armed with intercontinental ballistic missiles and aircraft, including high-accuracy long-range weapons. The strategic nuclear potential includes the strategic missile force. The SOF also includes the strategic conventional dual-purpose force, strategic and long-range bombers, and also submarines, uh, surface ships, and naval missile-carrying naval aircraft carrying high-accuracy long-range weapons. The SDF's key components are combat-ready forces and means of the aerospace defense, such as the Missile Attack Warning System, the system for monitoring outer space and the missile defense, space defense, and air defense. And uh, also related uh, to African relations uh, with uh, the Russian Federation, a Sudanese deputy head of the Sovereign Council, Mohamed Hamdan Delgallo, also known as Hamedi, agreed with the Russian Deputy Defense Minister Alexander Foman uh, to develop bilateral cooperation. The Sudanese senior official continued on Saturday his meeting with the Russian officials in Moscow, unconcerned by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the international condemnation for the aggression. During my meeting with Russian Deputy Defense Minister Alexander Mothin, I stress the importance of redoubling joint efforts and coordination between the two countries in all areas for the benefit of the two peoples, said Hermeti in a post on his Facebook page. We have a historic opportunity to seize and move forward for mutual benefit and our common aspirations, he stressed. The meeting was attended by the Sudanese ambassador and the military attache in Moscow as the visiting delegation did not include a senior military official. Hameni, who arrived uh, in Russia on Wednesday, is supposed to meet with President Vladimir Putin before his return to Khartoum. During his meeting with the Russian Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, the two sides said they agreed to activate all the signed agreements between the two countries. The two sides, however, did not refer to the suspended agreement on the naval base on the Red Sea. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Also in Sudan, thousands of Sudanese, including political leaders, took to the streets yesterday to support anti-coup protests spearheaded by the resistance committees and to express solidarity with the victims of the violent repression. The protesters, including the elderly and families of the martyrs of the revolution, gathered in al Street in a rally organized under the slogan, We Are All With You, to voice their rejection of the military coup and support regular anti-coup protests organized by the youth groups across the country. The demonstrators raised Sudanese flags and pictures of the victims of the popular protests since the outbreak of the revolution that toppled former pre- uh, President Omar al-Basha and pictures of political Chinese were held as well. The crowd chanted slogans such as power for the people and the military to their barracks. The people are stronger and setback is impossible. Also, they chanted slogans calling for justice, the martyrs, and the release of the detainees. Another news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent, on West Africa, reports emanating from Guinea-Bissau say that masked gunmen raided the headquarters of Guinea-Bissau's former ruling party yesterday. Two party members said weeks after a failed coup attempt in the West African state. The African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, the PAIGC, which led Guinea-Bissau to independence from Portugal in 1974, 
still contest the 2019 election of President Umaru Sosoko Mbalo. Zabalo Epena, a PAIGC member, said mass gunmen arrived at party headquarters in the capital of Basau yesterday and sowed panic by beating the security guards. Then they damaged the main door before breaking into our headquarters where they systematically searched. Uh, she told this uh, to the international press. The Pena suggested the gunmen were members of the security services. Uh, Fatima Martins, another party member, gave a similar account. However, the identity of the assailants is unclear. Uh, the Asian France press was unable to reach the defense ministry for comment. The raid comes after a failed coup attempt on February the 1st in Guinea-Bissau, a, a country of around 2 million people. That day, heavily armed men attacked government buildings in Bissau while the president was chairing a cabinet meeting. Eleven people were killed in the attack. Balo later said he had escaped the five-hour gun battle and described the attacks as a plot to wipe out the government. He has named a former head of the Navy, as well as two other men, as being behind the coup attempt. Tuesday, ex-Prime Minister and PAIGC leader Domingo Simoes Pierre was also banned from leaving the country in connection with an investigation into an alleged 2021 push attempt. And uh, finally, in Kenya, uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta yesterday said his party had joined an opposition coalition ahead of presidential and parliamentary elections in August and a bid to clean up politics of what he described as crooks. The announcement came after Kenyatta's anointed successor, William Rutu, who wants to contest the presidential election, was sacked uh, from the ruling Jubilee Party. I heard one person saying that there is nowhere in the world where a government unites with and supports the opposition, Kenyatta said, announcing that Jubilee was joining with Azimia La Umoja, Quest for Unity Coalition, headed by veteran opposition leader Ryla Odenga. Kenya will be the example. We are mature enough to distinguish between politics and the needs of the people. The East African powerhouse has traditionally been ruled by presidents from the dominant Kikuyu, uh, like uh, Kenyatta, or the Kalinjan uh, group, uh, like uh, Ruto. 2022's con- contest is shaping up to be a two-horse race between Ruto and Ryla, a mainstay of Kenyan politics uh, from the Luo community. Ruto was initially anointed by Kenyatta and his successor, but found himself marginalized after the arch foes Kenyatta and Odenga announced a truce in 2018. We are looking to create a movement that will deliver the country, Kenyatta said. Azimo La Umoja coalition is expected to pick its preferred presidential candidate in two weeks. But many observers say Odinga's nomination is a foregone conclusion. We are in this to restore the soul and secure the future of our people, Odinga said on yesterday. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, uh, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. 
The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so that you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, the special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go uh, to our website uh, at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. By logging on uh, to this website, uh, you uh, can uh, have access to this program as well as uh, well over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Gate Mouth, Brown, all the beat boys. And uh, once again, ladies and gentlemen, on the beat tonight, we have the lovely young lady from Beaumont, Texas. Her name, Miss Barbara Lynn.
Don't you go away. Don't you go away. Thank you so much for being with us. You're too much. And now, would you step right over here? We're going to make you work again just a little bit. May I uh, say we've had a tremendous uh, time tonight on the beat. I'd like to bring all of our fine guests. Welcome back. Uh, the voice and guitar playing of Barbara Lynn uh, from uh, Beaumont, Texas. Yes, the legendary uh, Barbara Lynn. And uh, right now we want to move uh, back uh, into excerpts uh, from an oral history delivered by Ella Baker in 1974. Uh, in the previous uh, program, we had uh, heard a considerable amount uh, of this interview uh, discussing uh, Ella Baker's uh, organizing effort uh, in the NAACP. Uh, later, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, her work uh, in education in New York City among uh, black and uh, Puerto Rican uh, communities, her uh, instrumental role in the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Uh, we're going to continue this uh, right now uh, in commemoration of African American History Month 2022. Uh, uh, let's listen in. And the motivation behind it being founded to, to really get at it. And uh, we, if we were to look at the... The Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to contrast the movement here with other movements. And you know that they, that movement was rooted very deeply in ideological kinds of considerations. Uh, I'm searching for ideology in this movement, but it's so elusive until uh, I'm going to have to conclude, I believe, that there was no basic ideology involved in, in, in the founding of SDLC. Not really the NAACP. Unless you don't call uh, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States in reality, you know, because uh, they don't don't really uh, put out pamphlets, uh, write uh, conceptual frameworks, uh, which is styles and ideology dealing with the system per se. They come up with uh, tactics and, and, and programs to deal to with problems right. dealing with race relations, yeah. you know. And uh, I'm trying to uh, really examine that. It's not so clear in my mind, as you can see, but these are the kinds of things that I'm trying to look at here. No, they were, I don't think there was an ideology that certainly was comparable to uh, uh, the Marxist-Leninist concept of a changed society. Uh, the nearest to an ideology would be, let's call it the Christian philosophy, and that tied in with the uh, uh, philosophy of Gandhian nonviolence, mass action, uh, nonviolent mass action. That was the nearest to it. Uh, but you see, this in itself becomes an elusive sort of a thing uh, when the uh, let's call it the impact of the uh, the need to grow uh, enters in. And maybe the influence uh, upon individuals, uh, the individual leadership, as to what shall we do next, and uh, what shall we do next frequently uh, comes from suggestions to from sources other than the organization, uh, like the identification with or speaking out against uh, identification with the anti-war movement. This did not develop out of the organization, out of discussion within the organization. Uh, it no doubt came uh, as a suggestion to the, end of, to the president uh, and uh, 
uh, an invitation to the president to come and speak at the anti-war rally. And uh, I know something about uh, uh, somebody saying there's a time now for Martin to speak on uh, anti-war. Uh, do you think that this is the time for it? And uh, somebody would say, uh, uh, yes, it is. And somebody would talk to him. Somebody that he felt uh, duty-bound, let's call it, to listen to. Okay. So the character then, and I'm trying to, to just uh, theorize here and just give almost every kind of responses, yeah. and I want your reaction to them. The character here then, as I said, would be uh, more and more on an action-oriented kind of a movement uh, than one which would lend itself to a somewhat long-term plan or an ideology uh, based on bringing about permanent social change or change in the system as such. And this action-oriented movement lent itself more to spontaneity than it did to the development of a structure uh, which would require a kind of rigid uh, format down through the years. So this, I think, more than anything else, would reflect uh, of the ultimate character uh, that was inherent in what SDIC was doing. Or would you differ with that? No, I wouldn't differ with it. I think you're quite correct there, because the personnel who uh, uh, provided the leadership for this for SDLC had never come to grips uh, with a philosophical uh, con uh, concept other than the general concept of non-violent mass action. Now, the, uh, uh, I don't think there was much, uh, I'll be gracious and say either time or other bases for uh, in-depth thinking about how far non-violent mass action can go and to what extent can you really involve people. You see, you may talk about them. But when you respond to, uh, as the organization did, to situations, uh, each situation and their, their major, major efforts were in response to situations. And when you exhaust yourself, let's call it on situations like in uh, Florence, or uh, situations in Albany. Like St. Albany. St. Albany and Albany, yes. Uh, what do you have? Uh, you see, because you haven't, uh, you, and the, all of this is being done within the context, uh, within the time period of two or three years. You see, uh, uh, the, uh, let's call it the uh, uh, overthrow of the Tsar. Yeah. was not a two-year thing. Right. And uh, people, and maybe the, maybe the, uh, the general format, not only the format, but the, uh, the uh, pattern of of communication and training and action, the development of an anti-Zarist movement uh, was much more stimulated, I suppose, by the existence of rather harsh physical conditions. And here you have uh, black people living in, quote, end quote, uh, conditions that they were in great affluence. I mean, here's the president becoming an international figure. And these harsh conditions we're not... Uh, never really touched. Never the body. really... Never oh, really... Yes. Yeah. Now let me... Thank you for talking a lot of money. We were...
trying to uh, uh, spell out uh, the character of, of, of SCLC, and we we uh, concluded that it was an action-oriented kind of a group uh, based on a great deal of spontaneity, and it sought those uh, activities uh, uh, which would allow it the the kind of flexibi flexibility that was necessary for it to 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 be the star of the moment, and this is my addition to it, the star of the moment. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, it uh, aborted its uh, role as being a, a, a long-term kind of a planning organization uh, dead set on fundamental change. And, and I'll repeat again, these are uh, conclusions of Gene Walker, and I'm working up to the next point that we're going to raise, Ms. Baker, uh, namely the role that you played in the settling of uh, or conflict uh, within uh, SNCC. So we want to come to that, if we may, because I found that very interesting. But at the same time, I didn't get as much uh, information out of it as I would like to have. And I've read a lot of different accounts, but I want to get it firsthand now. Uh, and this is information relative to the compromise uh, between the proponents of nonviolence and the voters' registration uh, 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 at, at, at the SNCC meeting in the Hollander School. Now, uh, you suggested, and this has been documented, uh, that you urged a compromise on the basis of the need for unity. What I would like to question you on specifically is how, in fact, did you get these two factions to compromise? You know, who were some of these specific individuals involved? What approach did you use in talking to them? There's no question about your being responsible for the compromise. What I'm trying to question you on is how specifically did you bring it about? Okay, okay, okay. So that's what I'd like to know. Uh, I would like to know, and I guess I'd have to ask them more. Are you recording? Oh, yes, yes, the recorder's on. The recorder's on, yes. Let me play back. <laughs> Mr. Baker, we'd, we'd like to uh, move away from SCLC per se right now and look at the role uh, that you played in bringing about a compromise between uh, certain factions of SNCC, namely the nonviolence group and the voters registration group. Now, I would like to ask you some specific questions about how you were able to bring this compromise about. Uh, the first question I'd like to ask you is, uh, can you recall some of the specific individuals uh, you talked to in either one of the factions and uh, the nature of your conversation with them? I'm trying to get specific information as to how this compromise uh, uh, came about. Well, I think the, to cite who was for, uh, nonviolence and uh, the who were for for the registration of the proponents of these two points uh, might have some bearing. One, uh, the people who had come out of Na of uh, Nashville uh, were more strongly oriented in the uh, philosophy of nonviolence than any other because of uh, Lawson. Uh, Reverend, Lawson. Reverend Lawson. You see, he had gone to India as a young missionary, I believe, 
uh, maybe during the days of, uh, you don't have to make yourself so uncomfortable, during the days of uh, Gandhi. And uh, he believed in it. And uh, so you had Diane Nash, uh, Marion Barry, now running for uh, mayor, I believe, of Washington. Well, the can I think he's one of the candidates for mayor, I believe. Uh, and um, John Lewis, and uh, maybe a couple of other people from uh, Nashville. On the other hand, you had uh, persons who had had some conferences with uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, which would include uh, Charlie Jones of Charlotte and uh, Chuck McDonough. Charlie Jones was a white or black? No, he was black. He was black. His, uh, have you ever heard of Charlie Jones and, and, and Chapel Hill? I know him, a minister, huh? Right. Yes, I know him. No, no, no relation, of, uh, at least not on the surface. And uh, Char uh, Charlie and uh, Chuck McDo, uh, and uh, I believe Timothy Jenkins was at that meeting. I'm not too sure. Uh, they were the people who had had this conference, and I think they were uh, sort of... Uh, influence to some extent. So what were the issues? The issue was uh, whether to be maintained, you had to have it just as a non-violent movement. Uh, the uh, voter registration group wanted a voter registration program. So the basic difference was whether you could have a mass non-violent uh, movement in voter registration uh, whether or not you would have the confrontation that the nonviolent advocates were uh, accustomed to and were looking for. So I certainly felt that, number one, historically we had had much too much of dividing forces on the basis of uh, uh, maybe concepts that did not necessarily serve purposes in the long run. And I also perhaps felt and maybe realized uh, beyond the uh, realization of the young that you could not possibly conduct a voter registration program in certain areas without confrontation. Uh, and I, that, I think, was the persuasive uh, argument that if you, uh, for instance, uh, you see at that stage uh, the Black Belt counties of Georgia uh, were in control of the state of Georgia uh, as far as uh, that proportion of what was that? Yes, no, well, no, I was thinking of uh, southwest Georgia, you see, and other uh, areas uh, around Albany. Uh, they were, uh, uh, yet, they, in terms of uh, uh, the Georgia Assembly, uh, they were much stronger than their. Uh, the population would warrant. But so what I was pointing out that you once you had initiated Yes, the county units, that's what I was trying to think of. The county unit system gave them much more strength than their uh, population warranted. And so that kind of information was information that young people uh, may not have had. That's number one. And number two, uh, the uh, pervasive, I mean, the persuasive argument, well, I think, was that once you mounted a voter registration campaign, 
involving mass registration, you would have the resistance that you going to that you were looking for, and you could utilize if you felt necessary, felt it necessary, the nonviolent uh, approach. But the most uh, uh, far-reaching concept was that too much of division uh, had taken place in struggle, and this was not necessary at this stage. And I felt that the young people were in better position to show uh, that uh, they could function uh, with and deal with these differing points of view uh, without having to split up the deal, because it had been uh, one of the decisions that had already been reached, or at least it had been proposed, I did propose that you have two camps. And uh, I was happy to have seen the two proponents, chief proponents of these two camps, um, finally work out their differences, Charles, Charles Jones and Diane Nash. Now, I think one of the reasons why I was listened to is because I had served their interests from the beginning. At the initial, after the initial meeting in Rome, there were no people around who had the, let's use the, the broad term, know-how, to even bring together the report, or the combination of know-how and facilities, to bring together the report, to uh, uh, write up certain things. And uh, they had seen me do this. Uh, they, shortly after that, you see, the, there was a delegation that had gone to the Democratic and the Republican Convention. And uh, how did the material get written? Uh, the young woman, the young white woman, Jane Stembridge, who became the first executive secretary, uh, she and I spent all of the uh, 4th of July. Uh, she was a typist. Well, you see, I had certain input that nobody else had. I had gone through the NAACP uh, period. In fact, I'd lived for a long time, <laughs> you see, the, and, and, and I had related to things. And so uh, they had seen that I was not ripping them off. And up to that point, they had been able to rely on me to do what they could not do or weren't in position to do at the moment in terms of uh, the nitty-gritty work that had to be done. And so they were willing to listen. How did they actually antagonize, I'm talking about SNCC now, SCLC and the NAACP? I'm mindful of a memo that went from Roy Wilkins' office to uh, Y.T. Walker while he was executive secretary of SCLC. And he was complaining about a press release that had been issued by SNCC. And Wilkins reminded Walker uh, that SNCC nor any other organization could speak for the NAACP in these kinds of things, you know. And Walker sent him a letter and said he agreed with him wholeheartedly, you know. He said, you can't control these young people, boy. They're just doing things all haphazardly, like, you know. So this was one instance as to where uh, SNCC irritated uh, uh, NAACP and SCLC. And this may have been one maneuver, one very small uh, factor here. So I'm asking you, can you recall any instances whereby SNCC was actually irritating, uh, uh, threatening, uh, threatening is a strong word, SCLC or the NAACP? I think the basic uh, 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 reason for the reaction 
of, let's say, NAACP and SCLC to SNCC is the fact that they elected to be independent. And they exercise the independence as only young people or unattached or people who are not uh, caught in a, in a uh, uh, framework of thought can exercise it. And uh, they were open. They were open to ideas that would not have been uh, certainly cherished or in some instances tolerated by either the NAACP or uh, SCLC. As, uh, as a chief example, uh, the moving into Mississippi, uh, when they decided they called it move on Mississippi, and they called it mom. Uh, now, I think they, uh, a delegation went to talk to Thurgood Marshall, who was then the chief counsel of the NAACP, uh, regarding this and to seek legal help. And Thurgood uh, was not responsive in the first place because uh, they, they had expressed, uh, the young people expressed the opinion and the determination that they were going to accept help from wherever they could get it, which meant that people like Crockett of Detroit uh, and other members of what was called, what is called the uh, uh, many white uh, lawyers, uh, the uh, National Lawyers Guild, which is uh, more leftist-oriented, uh, would be objectionable to the NACP because they, they didn't want to introduce this uh, conflict of ideologies, you know, the anti of communist, communist, pro-communist ideology, or lay themselves open to a charge on the part of the authorities that the communists were taking over. And so the young people had taken the position, I'm not sure of the sequence of whether the, uh, this memo, I don't know when this memo, it had to be so after why it came in, uh, the young people had taken the position that uh, they accepted help wherever they could get it. And one aspect of the help, for instance, that was uh, being sought in Mississippi was the uh, uh, utilization of, uh, let's call it, untried or unpopular methods of dealing legally uh, with the questions that arose out of the conflict, out of the struggle in Mississippi. And uh, persons like uh, the, uh, those who were uh, not within the old framework, the old lawyer framework, were much more open to trying these new things. And uh, by we, can, we can later deal with some of the specifics. I mean, I can refresh myself sometime or somewhere find some documentation for you. Uh, but this, I think, was the basis. And now, uh, but behind that, I think, uh, to be very honest, was the uh, feeling that here was this group of upstarts that nobody could control, and that they ought to be part of either my organization or your organization. I think we have dealt somewhat in our conversation, I believe, uh, with the uh, fact that at the initial meeting uh, there was this effort, uh, very strong effort, on the part of representation from at least a couple of organizations uh, to have the young people as part of them. And of course, the, uh, with a, almost a foregone conclusion on the part of SCLC that uh, because the meeting had been uh, called by... Uh, 
guess. Well, I guess they had. I had thought of it that way, but there was a foregone conclusion that the SNSCLC, quote, end quote, sponsored the meeting, that it was, uh, they would uh, be a part. Uh, that's, I remember in, this, in, this, in Raleigh at the time, Wyatt expressed the opinion he was particularly interested in this because he was coming in, you see, as executive director, and he wanted a strong arm. Uh, the unfortunate part was that there was an assumption on the part of the ministers, uh, part of the SCLC personnel who was there, that they could literally dictate, I use the term advisedly, uh, dictate to representatives from uh, their area and control their voting. Uh, and uh, it was at that point I walked out of the meeting. Uh, there was this uh, quote unquote uh, meeting of the chief executives, these were adults and not a young person present, uh, and at which they were revoicing such opinions as I can speak to so and so, and I can talk to. Uh, uh, Thornton from Virginia, and I can control, uh, uh, say, uh, one from Ben Montgomery, uh, Bernard Lee. Yeah, we're uh, talking about how to use it. Yes, uh, and you see, this was a, a completely uh, uh, intolerable to me. But they eventually experienced a rude awakening in trying to deal with these young people. Uh, the young people just weren't listening to them. Well, you see, that was their first experience uh, of recognizing that the, the young people were going to make their own decisions. Uh, I they, Because at that time, they found that, that they weren't able to control the voting. There was, uh, at this meeting in Raleigh, uh, Dr. King and Reverend Lawson, I think, were the two people that uh, gave keynote addresses. You know, they both were really outstanding. Uh, but from reading about accounts of that meeting, uh, one uh, gets the impression that the students were much more impressed with the speech by Reverend Lawson than they were with the speech by Dr. King. They had to be. Was Lawson that uh, more uh, uh, knowledgeable and, and, and persuasive in his presentation than uh, Dr. King? How do you account for this, uh, the fact that he made a much more profound impression on the youth than uh, Dr. King? Well, I think Dr. King, uh, in a measure, um, even from there and in some other instances in my way of thinking, was the victim of his own background, namely that of being uh, uh, a preacher and who had relied to a large extent on the impact of eloquence. And uh, so, and uh, but uh, Lawson, uh, had not only uh, the eloquence enough to be heard, but he had the persuasiveness of argument. And uh, this, and he also had the credential, as far as the young were concerned, of having been a part of uh, that student effort in uh, Nashville. And uh, the Nashville group at that initial meeting in Raleigh was regarded as the group because they came with a great deal of indoctrination. They had indoctrination, but they also had provided action, and they had suffered. And so uh, they were. They had their credentials there, and these credentials were recognized by the young. And as far as Dr. King was concerned, uh, his, he had not his his speech. I don't remember his speech, but his speech could not possibly 
had had the same relevance because uh, even if he uh, uh, because uh, that Lawson did because he had not been engaged in uh, the uh, what the students had been doing with the same degree of membership let's call it he was still outside all right. This is a little derivative, but it's not too far in the line of what we're talking about. And, and this brings to mind a man by the name of Vincent Harding. Yes. Oh, I love Vincent. Now, the reason I'm bringing up his name right now is that uh, I've been informed somewhere in my interviewing that Dr. King somewhat feared or uh, was a little bit reluctant to deal with in a very open and, 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 and comprehensive way. Uh, personalities such as Vincent Harding and Reverend James Lawson. Uh, did you get an impression like that? Did you ever get the impression that King regarded these men as somewhat of a threat to his position with their knowledge and power of persuasive? I could say I got the impression that uh, uh, specifically uh, that he was loath to do this. Uh, but I think I think that I can make a generalization that I, uh, Martin suffered from uh, self-protectiveness that frequently goes with one who has been accorded high uh, place in public image. And uh, he was not uh, sufficiently secure, I think, to feel that uh, he could exist and they could exist without being uh, without feeling that they were competitive or threats. I don't think he even maybe he may not have been conscious of that. I don't know. I won't say. But uh, this is not uncommon, you see. Especially is it not uncommon out of the background which he comes. You have to continue to emphasize that. He had not had the kind of organizational discipline that either Mar uh, that Lawson had had or Vincent, because I think Vincent was part of uh, uh, Friends. Yes, and he had, you see, that was, that's dialogue. That's where people talk things out a lot, where they have been, had a long series of discussions. See, Martin had not had these things. And his uh, PhD in ethics and philosophy was, uh, could possibly prepare him for this kind of... No, because you needed to have some, uh, you need, I don't care how much uh, reading you do, if you haven't had uh, the interchange of the dialogue and confrontation with others. Uh, you can be frightened uh, by uh, a, someone who comes and, uh, and, in, and is in position to confront you. That's right. with especially if they confront you uh, with an air of security. In yes, and, they, and if they come with their own credentials. You see. And uh, that was an insecurity, I think. I don't know whether he was ever aware of it, but there, and it's a natural insecurity coming out of that Baptist tradition, because you see, the Baptist ministers have never had uh, ha, ha been strong on uh, dialogue. It's a victim. Now we're talking back again to SCLC. Can you recall any ministers in that organization uh, that impressed you as being individuals who who sought? Uh, uh, practical ways of dealing with problems and the institutionalization of a policy-making kind of apparatus in SDLC. Was anybody who was put pressure, we mentioned Shirtlesworth and people like uh, Jamison out of uh, Louisiana, you know, but can you think of any other people who was trying to apply constant pressure to the creation of, of, of a kind of a structure which would allow for the dealing in a tactical and flexible situation for dealing with practical problems? 
an institutionalization of a, a uh, decision-making apparatus? Well, uh, I would think Keller Miller Smith certainly would be a person within that context, you see, within the national situation, too. But uh, I think he was not too happy, uh, you know, with the lack of that uh, developing... Uh, he was too happy with the, maybe the manner in which the structure was being developed or, or the mechanism for decision-making uh, was uh, being developed. Uh, uh, but you mentioned sh the shuttle threat. I think they question inside, but you see, there's also this business of closing ranks after the questioning. Explain that for me. That means uh, we're on the same board. And uh, if we are inside, behind closed doors, we can differ. Uh, but when you have, quote, end quote, the great leader, you close ranks in public. And that in itself sometimes decimates the effectiveness of the uh, dialogue. And especially when the leader is open to advice and uh, receptive to advice and uh, from others. That's very good. That's very informative and enlightening, man, because you had explained earlier this closing rank kind of yeah. thing, and, uh, and in addition to decimating, uh, it has an almost emasculating kind of an effect, especially on a strong personality. When behind closed doors, you can pour it all out, but you never can enjoy the whole forum for trying to influence people to your way of thinking, you know, and. Uh, this is something I'm going to have to examine and try to see just how strong will people dealt with this kind of a situation. I think a man like Kelly Miller Smith of Nashville, a person like Fred Shirlsworth, had to be uncomfortable and frustrated a lot of times because these were people who wanted to express their own ideas and ways of doing things, I think. Well, in all probability, but I think Kelly was uh, perhaps feeling more secure at being in Nashville and having played a role there, and I, he may have even reached point of wanting to retire from a certain kind of role. I don't know. See, um, what am I predicating that upon? The fact that I don't think he has, uh, since the uh, students of Nashville were in the uh, confrontation uh, issue, at the, in the stage of confrontation, I don't think he has been instrumental in developing any program that precipitated confrontation. So that's number one. And a person like Fred, he had his own uh, uh, machinery that was continuing uh, in Birmingham up until the time of the Birmingham quote-unquote movement that uh, Martin identified with. Uh, I mean, he knew he was able to keep going. So I think this is part of it. All right. So, well, let me ask you again about this, this man, Reverend Y.T. Walker. Uh, he uh, assumed the executive directorship uh, right after you, after your acting Director's whatever uh, you call it. Or whatever, right? <laughs> don't see, I'm trying to give a name. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, what, do you, can you enlighten me on the process involved in, in selecting why you work in the morning? Who recommended him, you know? And uh, after his recommendation, uh, who interviewed him? And like, I know you and Mr. Levinson talked to Reverend Philly and subsequently recommended him, and he was eventually hired. Can you explain the process of selecting why you work in? Well, Wyatt had uh, a movement uh, in, uh, or had been involved in movement in Petersburg. Uh, I think at the stage that he came into contact with uh, Martin, uh, he came as president of uh, the P 
Petersburg, whatever it was. He had also been identified with Corps in Virginia and had worked uh, with NAACP in Virginia. His uh, child, I think, his daughter, I believe it's his daughter, uh, was the guinea pig in the school situation in, P in Petersburg, you know, after the 54 decision. That's what happened my son. Is that so? He used them as a guinea pig. I'd never do that again. I'm yeah. never advising about sending that kid to run them all the way to. Yeah. I couldn't do that in good country. No, anymore. Never. Yeah. Yeah. Never be a pioneer again. Well, Wyatt uh, had had that experience, plus uh, he had been to uh, uh, several of the meetings. I, he was not at the, I don't think he was at the organizing meeting, I'm not sure. But he was at the uh, conference, the first of the so-called nonviolent conferences that was held at the uh, and, uh, at uh, Selma. Forgot about those. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I have yeah, I did that one too. <laughs> so, um, and uh, that's where I met him. I didn't know him. I knew of him. And I think he'd been coming to meetings. Now, who first spoke to him about being executive? I am not sure whether I'm the one, but I think I am. I had, uh, he and his wife were visiting New York. And a good friend, a mutual good friend, George Lawrence, the Reverend George Lawrence. Uh, I had known George in his escalation up the ladder. And uh, I invited them to come to the house. I even cooked the lamb. <laughs> and uh, we had dinner, and I raised the question of why, with why, of being the executive director. Now, he may have had uh, inclinations and aspirations for it before. And he may have been approached by somebody, I don't know. But I do know that. And uh, I am uh, not too sure whether I uh, I probably may have spoken to or voiced this around uh, in the circle of Martin a lot. I don't know because I hadn't left completely then, I don't think. And so uh, uh, that was uh, the first step uh, that I know of. And uh, so. Of course, why being the personable individual he is, and a contemporary, age-wise and uh, style-wise, as far as uh, Martin, uh, that was not too difficult a bridge to cross, and they had had very little or no success in finding a minister uh, to be the executive director. They were still a minister. Yes, it had to be a minister. Certainly, it had to be a male. It had to be a minister still. I told you about those uh, criteria in this election. Yes. Whereby Martin wrote that down. It's yes. a mistake. Yeah. Now, there was a point that he was trying to make. It's another thing I don't know. But he certainly suggested that we ought to consider a person who may not necessarily be a minister. The implication being that uh, executive skills should take part, you know, as a religious uh, affiliation, you know, or as a religious, religious man. And, uh, Reddick and all these other people made similar kinds of suggestions. But it's no one stipulated that that he can't. Yeah, one man, uh, Reverend Lowry, suggested that it should be a minister. And I made his suggestion to the president so everybody knows. Where? In terms of documentation. Yeah, you know, uh, I'd, like, I'd be interested in the date for that. Well, it was before the selection of Reverend Tilly. Uh -huh. It was uh, a criteria suggested uh, for them to consider in trying to uh, get a person like Reverend Tilly. Well, I think maybe uh, Martin's uh, verbalization regarding it did not necessarily have to be a minister. 
uh, could have come as a result of uh, uh, his consultation with uh, persons like uh, uh, Stanley and just was fired, and then even maybe my own presence there at the time, see, and the fact that they had made approaches to other ministers and had not uh, been a, a minister of a certain standing, like uh, uh, my Pitts, you see, and had not uh, gotten a favorable response, you see. So it was and it may have been uh, more political than uh, uh, to have made that kind of statement. Right, and we talk about it. Yes. Yeah. 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 Layman that was elected to a position, other than a lawyer, and I have Augustine. I feel, uh, yeah, Augustine, yeah. Augustine, and uh, he's the only one that I've seen who's not a minister listed uh, in some permanent position. Well, no, the only non-minister who is, uh, uh, as I recall, with the executive board was uh, Dr. Simpkins. Yeah, that's right. He's an MD, not a... Yes, no, he is a dentist, DPS. Yeah, in the and uh, oh, I think, but he had a good movement. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. They could This brings me to questions about uh, other people whose name I've seen frequently in the earlier stages of SDLC. For example, uh, Dr. Redding, who was formerly at uh, Alabama yes. State and was a designated official historian of the organization. Uh, he figured prominently in a number of executive committee meetings, uh, his name. Yes. You never see what they said because I don't have records of the minutes and I haven't been able to find them. Uh, but uh, can you recall uh, what you perceived his role to be in the organization, Dr. Lawrence Reddick? Well, uh, Reddick was in Montgomery at the time of the, uh, I believe, at the time of the boycott. Teaching there. Certainly he was there. Uh, at the time of the drive to its freedom, and I think to a large extent, uh, may have uh, been the actual uh, uh, writer, if not the actual writer, certainly the guiding hand in the development of that. Without a question. Yes. So um, uh, there was a certain amount of rapport, let's call it, that had already been established and, uh, between him and Martin, and then Martin, of course, being male uh, and a PhD have some respect for one who was also who had these credentials. Um, and um, so he was part of uh, the executive committee, but I'm not sure that he had any overriding influence uh, at all. But uh, uh, and then he left Montgomery, I believe. Yes, yeah, and went and to uh, State. Yes, Coppin State, and then from there to Philadelphia. Yeah. That's where he's present. Yeah. I was in touch with him while he was I see. Uh, well, uh, I don't know. Uh, you haven't had a chance to... No, he told me that uh, he would talk with me, and uh, he would try and see what he could contribute to my study, you know, but uh, he was the official, and still is, yeah, historian. You know, and a historian to me is the person who's supposed to have all...
No, he told me that uh, he would talk with me, and uh, he would try and see what he could contribute to my study, you know, but uh, he was the official, and still is, historian, you know, and the historian to me is the person who's supposed to have all the records and things. He has the...
good to big source of messages. I don't think the mom is going to say Certainly that part that came in while I was there would not be considered, in my opinion, that big source. Right, a lot of time and energy and personnel was invested in bringing this thing off. You know, yeah. it's part of Dr. King and the organization itself. And I don't know if it balances out in terms of being perceived with the amount invested in it or not. And I was curious to answer that. Well, I wouldn't, certainly directly it did not, as far as I could conceive of it. And, uh, but uh, especially going to these conventions, uh, I, I didn't think of it as such. I don't recall the, what the total came to be. Well, let's list it But there's another conceptual kind of a question. Did they ever attempt to define in any specific way the role of the executive director and associate director? Yeah. Well, when you say specific, you... Uh, you know, to, to give you uh, a job description, you know, like you attempted to do. And it didn't, and it didn't, it didn't, you, didn't you didn't get it beforehand, and uh, uh, I think uh, after we had been pushing for certain things, and I said, because uh, I remember in my last page, I was pushing for not only job descriptions, but certainly uh, certain other uh, bases of consideration. Certainly, coffee break. Yes. You know, I, uh, yeah. your whole memo about this. Yes. Uh, and uh, this was predicated upon the fact that there were people, uh, people came without the same kind of experience and training uh, than as the, uh, that the person that they were there with me and was getting more. And, uh, oh yes, uh, but this is personal. Uh, and uh, this I, of course, objected to. And uh, uh, thank goodness the child group, the young lady who came, uh, I think I told you she came from that part of your South Atlanta. Yeah. And she was one, one of White Walker's secretaries. No, uh, but she may have stayed there a while, a while after he came. She did. Yeah, yeah, she Mrs. resigned to go to Lockheed. Lockheed yeah. She wrote him a letter of yeah. resignation. Yeah, because, you see, uh, there was nobody else there. And they, uh, I think the Reverend King brought in uh, his former, one of his former church secretaries as uh, a bookkeeper, I believe. But, uh, and then there was this great division of, of you know, responsibility. Uh, and uh, that was not the necessary rapport that could have, should have existed. See, I'm sure uh, Mrs. Brown, I believe. Was that was the name, yes. She had so much capacity, and thank goodness we were help, helpful in getting her to release herself from the uh, syndrome. Well, <laughs> well she did. Uh, I had to let her, but she resigned. Yeah. Now, we, we, we've been talking on the periphery. I'm going to ask you directly now, and treat it in the way you see fit. Uh, Could you describe your relationship with Dr. What kind of a relationship did you have while you were working as a person in charge of the uh, citizenship project, as one who served as associate director and as one who served as acting director? <laughs> well, in the initial stages, I practically no no relationship. He was not relating to the uh, situation too well. Let's put it that way. Uh, he was. They were living in still in Montgomery, and he would come to Atlanta, and I never seen him. Well, who was your, he was the president of the order. Yes, he was. Well, uh, 
Who did you relate to in terms of trying to... Who would help Right, and, and who suggested to you uh, what your role should be in the organization? No one. There was no one. Yeah, after all. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, no, no one had suggested to me because first place, they, uh, they, they could, uh, the background for conceptualizing it was not there in terms of uh, uh, the leadership, the top leadership. Uh, but um, uh, they had this idea of having these meetings. See, that's where it stopped. Pardon me. And so uh, then what does it take to get those meetings? I think they, to a large extent, one was depending on fire. Uh, uh, of course, at the last stages, I think for the last couple of days before the meetings took place, Fires came down, but you see, he didn't need to come down then. But uh, of course, that could yeah, also be yeah. taken as uh, proof of his. Uh, I mean, after all, if you're supposed to be the top. As a matter of fact, strategist. Uh, you're invited, uh, as designated as co directors of the citizenship committee. Yeah. On the letterhead so, of all Yes, you see. So, uh, well, that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, so, uh, uh, from the standpoint of. Um, my relationship with Mark, I think my, it was mutual, almost mutual uh, tolerance in a certain sense. I understood from the beginning that I was not going, I didn't go there with any hope or any expectation of being uh, a key figure recognized as such. Uh, but it's another one of those efforts that I felt that, all right, things had to be done. I was in position to do them, and uh, hopefully it would be part and parcel of a contribution to moving things ahead. I think maybe from Martin's standpoint, uh, well, you have to tolerate what you have to tolerate. I don't know. Uh, I had heard in later years that he um, said or felt that, uh, I don't know whether he said it or someone else, that uh, I I don't want to say I hated him or disliked him or something like that. But you see, Martin wasn't good at receiving uh, questioning, uh, critical questioning. And at this time, this is not only, he was not alone, because this is a, this is a pattern with ministers. And to come, see, after all, who was I? I was female, I was old, I uh, <laughs> didn't have any PhDs, and... Uh, but some of the, some, an interesting uh, angle, um, there was a, con- a uh, news conference there. There was a little gathering between NAACP officials and, and uh, CLC officials in connection with some voter uh, registration program. Uh, uh, Roy, Roy Wilkins and I think Bob Carter came down and then, of course, there was Martin and Ralph and others. And, uh, and then, of course, there was the uh, news conference. And uh, uh, I remember, I believe it was Ralph who said to me, he wouldn't have let himself be ignored in the situation. You see, I rolled in it because I, he knew I knew more about the history of uh, voter registration and what had taken place in the struggle uh, that... Uh, well, equally as my, I at least was familiar with all the things that the NACP had done, see, historically, 
and uh, I uh, marked and had that historical information to Fenger. And uh, uh, he had not been active in uh, getting around in the in that current period. So, but it didn't sir, it didn't bother me. Maybe it should have. I don't know. Well, here's the thing that kind of bothers me, and I was at a loss to understand. Uh, there was a question about the press release. Anyway, Mark uh, there, I guess they suggested to each other that no press releases would go out of the office unless they first read and approved it, you know. And you, they must have told you that or something like that, because I got the impression that a memo or something you sent back to Mark that the next press release, you would let him read it before it would be released. Did you ever have any difficulty at all with them on press releases? No, I don't recall too much of a difficulty because maybe I didn't recognize it. Well, this was a little, it was a little nuanced kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, you don't know which, you know, that was that, that's what, uh, it was that, that's the, 59, late 59. Yeah, when I, when it's when it first. That's uh, right, just uh, about uh, going into the 60s, I think yeah. the early 60s before. Wait, well, see, I was on my way up there. Oh, and you was informing him that. I had indicated, I had indicated that, uh, uh, see, I think it was in December of 59 that I would, uh, uh, See, after was December, or maybe early '60, uh, that I would be leaving. And uh, see, I think I left in August of '60. I stayed there till the Wyatt was chosen. Well, I was trying to detect from, from that uh, little memo to whether or not they were trying to put a stranglehold. Well, I'm sure. You see, they uh, were. Were I don't know what. I don't remember any press release that they uh, uh, had any basis for objecting to. But see, I had to write letters and sign Martin's name to them. And a couple of occasions, for instance, a situation in, uh, I think, the mayor of Birmingham or something there, and I, he, he brought the issue up to him, sent him information on it, and nothing came. So he eventually did uh, send a letter out. Or certainly now, when the meeting was held in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, uh, uh, the letters uh, that are signed nominally by him, uh, who wrote them? <laughs> and uh, you, you had to get them out. So I don't recall that. I don't think probably was a growing feeling, you see, that... Uh, yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that. I can't recall exactly... If you have to, if you happen to dig up that memo, I'd be... Uh, in the I'll send you a copy. Yes, I'd be glad. I'll be glad. I'd, and well, I'll clarify as best I can. Yeah, yeah, and... Uh, there was a, a, a situation involving the, the uh, uh, When did you let them know that you wouldn't be back? Did they give you any, any indication that they would be happy for you to leave or they didn't want you to stay around and you just decided that it was best for you to just get on out of the thing? Well, well there was every indication, you see, from the beginning that uh, my presence there was not one uh, that could be a very tolerable uh, situation for 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 me uh, in the sense of what role can you play effectively? Uh, you fill the breach of having nobody to to instigate or to conduct the in, uh, I mean to draft uh, or, or get together that initial meeting. I didn't. I went to stay six weeks. That's all I had planned. 
And then after that, they were still without anybody. So I stayed home. And then uh, uh, when the sit-ins broke, uh, I suggested, of course, that there needed to be some, at least, a meeting of sit-in leaders uh, for the purpose of uh, communication, if not coordination. That's how I began the uh, April 1960 meeting in Shaw, out of which SNCC as a uh, viable uh, uh, organization uh, got its roots. Well, I know. I was, I was curious to ask you about that because it kind of see a kind of Well, in all problems, there were lots of consultations and uh, uh, discussions around my role and around me that did not uh, come to my life. I'm confident. Did you involved in your call any confrontation that the two of you had that uh, was a little volatile? Uh, you, know, uh, you know, that. Uh, you had an argument of anything of that sort, why you were just, uh, as you suggested well, earlier, tolerating each other? Well, let's uh, see. Uh, I would raise questions about things that were un- intolerable, not to me as such, but policy-wise. I like the question of the differential in salary for a young person who, had, who was capable and had come under difficult circumstances and worked effectively. Uh, getting less than someone who was brought in uh, and did not uh, and wasn't doing too much see, at number one. The differential there. I was uh, I would confront on the basis of uh, uh, regulations uh, regarding how you hire people and how what kind of rights they had and so things like that and. Uh, uh, I would also uh, raise questions about uh, issue, any issue that came up that I didn't, that I would voice my opinion on. So I think the situation was a mutually tolerable situation. Uh, now I recall the, uh, it just comes to mind, the newsletter uh, James Stembridge and I started. It beautiful, you know, having a copy of that. I have one copy of yeah. One copy of where you, you indicated all the meetings. That's the only thing that all of the meetings that they had had. Uh-huh. But there was no content about what transpired at these meetings. But I do have a date, and I can go back and try to get newspaper accounts of things in these cities. Did they ever report on these meetings that, uh, that yeah. took place? Like you had a nonviolence conference in Durham, you had one in Streetport, you had one in Montgomery. At the same time during the years of 57 and 58, there were about six meetings. The largely mass meetings. A mass meeting. Yeah. These were large mass meetings. Yeah. Did they ever report on these meetings in the newspapers? Well, they would uh, hope to have the press there. See, this is part of the format. Big meeting. Uh, what the local press. newspapers report on? Well, I. I don't know. You never did check into these no, accounts. They they probably had uh, some uh, some reports. I didn't. Uh, we had no record. I didn't keep any record. Okay, so that's the way I'm gonna try to get at that. Yeah. I'm gonna first get the local newspapers that's of right, these yes. cities that you met in. I have all of them listed here. Yeah. You, and, uh, you see, wherever Martin went at that time, at least some news uh, coverage took place. Yeah. 
Well, I have all the meetings listed, the dates of the places yeah. they took place, and I'm going to try to get these uh, music to give some reading of, yeah. of, of the temple. Uh, now, you see, for instance, uh, the initial meeting uh, that was held in Montgomery, at which the name of SCLC was determined, uh, I was there. Well, I thought that meeting uh, took place in New York. That was the second meeting. February of to carrying out uh, the, uh, let's call it, the wishes of the president, let's put it that okay. way. Yeah. Burger. Yeah. And therefore, uh, it, his initiating, may, that may have been a frustration even for him, he, although he was not a very aggressive person in the sense of uh, want to dominate the scene, or at least showing the desire to dominate the scene. But it, could, it had to have some degree of uh, frustration because the president so often you couldn't find it. Yeah. Uh, this is, was a, a, a thing that you give the impression of. I gave the impression that he was the most businessman in the country uh, in order to get Dr. King to speak at a particular place. You yeah. have to contact him about a year and a half in advance. Unless uh, it involved the person that uh, potentially, you know, had potentials for giving money, or uh, one of his favorite friends, you know, one of his favorite white institutions. Yeah. We could always find time to go to Harvard. Yeah, I still do. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah. Well, at least that makes a difference. It makes a difference. They had a schedule, and uh, a person who wanted them to speak at Harvard or Yale or one of these yeah, big schools could. Uh, contact them about a month and a half before time. But a lady like Miss Hughes who was giving them all that money out at Houston, Texas. Yeah, I remember her. Uh, she was she about two years. Uh, yeah. How much money did she finally give? Well, she gave them one time better than a thousand dollars to come up and speak uh, to her graduating class. I see. At that business school. Yeah. This lady is a fantastic lady to me in her letters. Yes. Uh, she would write him all the time. And when Reverend Jackson attacked him, uh, oh, yeah. Jackson, that Baptist, uh, Baptist. Oh, she really lamp blasted. So this is a lot of I'm happy to share that. Thank you. Uh, at the July the 22nd through 24th, uh, 1959 Institute on Nonviolent Resistance and Segregation meeting. Uh, which represented, according to uh, the memo, the first South-wide effort to evaluate nonviolence resistance as an instrument for social change. Uh, uh, you 
you suggested in your memo that Reverend Wyatt T. Walker was preparing the recommendations and findings of that meeting. Did he ever submit this to anybody? Not to me. We, we were talking about the question of Harry Belafonte's involvement in the movement, and you indicated to me that he had come out of a tradition of movement somewhat to the left, too. Could you recall that for me, please, where I can try to get that done? Well, frankly, I am not uh, truly aware of the specifics, but you see, he came out as a young man uh, struggling in the, the uh, area of entertainment mm -hmm. and uh, at the time when in the New York area you had a uh, uh, atmosphere in which uh, the so-called ultra-left such liberals as Mrs. Uh, Roosevelt mm -hmm. and others were speaking on the same platform so he was not unaware of they left this movement, and I don't know personally of his you know, involvement, but I do know at the time of the 1957 prayer of pilgrimage, uh, he was, uh, the of course, had gotten involved with the prayer pilgrimage, and uh, they had a press conference uh, down at uh, the uh, uh, where uh, the NACP headquarters, and I was told that they, uh, he was there and they uh, banned him, I was told. Now, I wasn't there, and, uh, see, but uh, I wouldn't have doubted Do you it. think he might have been classified as one of those young tricks in the NAACP? No, he wasn't in the, I think, no, if anything, they must have banned him because of his prior affiliations. They may have thought of him as, quote, in quote, red. Yeah. I think this is the anti-communist uh, reaction on the part of NACP. Okay. Now, whether he was ever was or was, I don't know. Okay. And uh, doesn't matter. But well, that's very good. He in the liberal tradition in his philosophical thinking, okay. I would think. Okay. And uh, uh, since then, he has uh, uh, been associated uh, with uh, uh, the liberal movement in the entertainment world, you know. So. So that's what I, mean. I want to get a basis uh, for consideration and something. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from an oral interview uh, with uh, Ella Baker, 1974. And uh, of course, she discusses the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, where she had served as associate director and acting associate director, according to uh, the dialogue uh, from this audio file. And also uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee being instrumental in uh, organizing the conference in 1960, April of 1960, that led to the formation of SNCC. And uh, we have been honoring African American History Month 2022. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast. For uh, the early morning hour of February, Monday, February the 28th, 2022. Uh, and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment.
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. That was uh, Brownstone uh, with the tune entitled Grapevine. And uh, we are, of course, uh, commemorating African American History Month, uh, which ends today, uh, February 28th. We're going to have a focus on uh, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, from Mississippi, who, in fact, played a monumental role in the civil rights movement during the 1960s, extending into the 1970s. Uh, Ms. Hamer uh, became an organizer and spokesperson for the Sudan Violent Coordinating Committee and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which challenged the seating of the Mississippi Democratic Party all-white Jim Crow delegation to the 1964 Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Let's listen in. and thank you for joining us. I'm Wilson Stribling. Welcome to another edition of At Issue, where we discuss and debate the critical issues facing the state of Mississippi and how these issues impact you. Tonight, we take a look back at the life and legacy of a civil rights icon, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, who would have turned 100 years old on October 6th. She went from picking cotton in Sunflower County to commanding the nation's attention during the civil rights movement. She helped organize Freedom Summer in Mississippi for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. She was also instrumental in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, where her testimony opened the country's eyes to the oppression of African Americans in Mississippi. Tonight, we'll hear from people who knew Mrs. Hamer, but first, we hear from historians at the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute for Citizenship and Democracy at Jackson State University, in their own words. She was a sharecropper, and she was influenced by her mother and her father. She was also a biblical scholar, so she was really concerned about how can you provide relief for the oppressed people? How can you provide relief, relief for the people who were mired in poverty? So she was concerned about those issues all of her life. And she often said that she didn't exactly know how to get involved in the movement, but she saw things that were happening across the country. So when the, when the civil rights organizations came to her community, she immediately uh, partook of their activities and got involved in the movement. So she grew up with an idea that she wanted to improve her life chances and the life chances of the people in her community. Her main role was that she was a civil rights worker. And so one of the primary responsibilities as a member of SNCC was voter registration, but, but, but she did more. She established Freedom Farm in Sunflower County. Uh, she fed people. Uh, she clothed people. She did those things that you are admonished to do, provide clothing and shelter, and she did that for her community in Ruleville, but also she helped people across the state of Mississippi and across the nation. She endured a violence and threats, and through it all, she kept her eyes on the prize. She kept hate out of her heart, uh, and she challenged America to be a better nation. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964 went to the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and they challenged the lily-white segregated delegation of Democrats from Mississippi. And, and we went there with the sole purpose of replacing 
the segregated delegation. And we made claim that we were the legitimate delegation that represented all segments of the population in Mississippi. And the segregationist delegation did not represent all segments of the population. So Mrs. Hamer and all of us were calling for that these freedom Democrats should be seated and not the lily white segregated delegation from our state. I didn't have any idea that we would have such an, a national impact on the country. I didn't really have any idea that Mrs. Hamer, that her testimony would have such a national and international impact on the country. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. It was overwhelming. It was emotional. It, it was uplifting. It was like being in church on a good Sunday. It was overwhelming. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Her testimony was just that influential. Uh, but, but her testimony helped to change the rules of the National Democratic Party. So in the future, uh, the party promised not to seat segregated delegations. They, they agreed to have uh, men and women, black and white, in the delegations. So Mrs. Hamer's testimony was able to accomplish all of that. Her 15 minutes of testimony helped to change the very foundation of Democratic Party and, by definition, Republican Party politics in America. And this was a woman with a sixth grade education. So Fannie Lou Hamer is an extraordinarily important person. She, there's a reason that not many people know about her. It's because if we tell the story around Fannie Lou Hamer, we tell the story about a person who's not supposed to be a, an American hero. She's black. She's female. She was a sharecropper. Uh, didn't have a formal education. If we tell a story of American history where someone like Fannie Lou Hamer changes America, then anyone can change America who's dedicated to it. And I think that, that we don't tell that story. That's not the story I learned growing up. Uh, and that's not really the story I learned in college. We studied leaders and leaders looked like me. Uh, leaders were, uh, had, had money. Leaders had education. Leaders went to private schools. You know, uh, and Fannie Lou Hamer represents a kind of democratic hero that we still don't know how to incorporate in the history that we teach. And we would have a, we'd be a very different America if Fannie Lou Hamer was on the standardized test, you know, but she's not. We can make this that she's known because she gave really nice speeches, because she mobilized people, because she, and all of that's very important. But she also helped change institutions. She also was a symbol representing a whole host of people who had not been heard politically. She can be also seen as a symbol of a whole host of people who currently aren't being heard politically and still need to have that kind of public voice and that kind of public presence. She could be seen as a reminder of what America actually is and what citizenry actually looks like. The willingness to engage your government, the willingness to challenge injustice, even at great personal cost. But I think it's really up to us as to how she's going to be remembered. Um, 
because unfortunately, she can also just quickly become a footnote to history, and that would be a shame. Here's what Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson says about Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. Quote, Fannie Lou Hamer was a clarion voice in the fight for justice and equality. I was fortunate to be one of many civic-minded individuals who was touched by her passion and purpose. Mrs. Hamer used her voice as a weapon against injustice, and that legacy lives on today. Mississippi and this country are better places because Mrs. Hamer was willing to force the issue, even at the expense of making others uncomfortable. Joining us now are two veterans of the civil rights movement, both of whom knew Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer personally. Flonzie Brown Wright is a native of Canton, where in 1968 she became the state's first female African-American elected official since Reconstruction. She is an author, lecturer, and consultant. The Reverend Rims Barber is a Chicago native who came to Mississippi as a volunteer during the Freedom Summer of 1964, and he has been here almost ever since. He has spent the better part of his life fighting for stronger public policy for those most in need of a strong voice. And we thank you both for joining us on uh, At Issue this evening. Thank you. I'd like to start by finding out a little bit more about how you got to know uh, Mrs. Hamer. Uh, Ms. Wright, how did you first become associated with her? Well, uh, living in Canton, and of course, Mrs. Annie Devine was a, a co-worker of Mrs. Hamer. And I was Mrs. Devine's driver. Oh. So anytime Mrs. Devine had to go to Greenville to meetings with Mace and other political um, um, meetings and programs, I drove Mrs. Devine. So I knew of Mrs. Hamer before I met Mrs. Hamer. And on one of my trips to Greenville, there was a meeting with a group of individuals of which Mrs. Hamer was one. But I knew her, and I, I knew her So it, when I actually, actually met her. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was as though I had known her all the time, but I met her through Mrs. Annie Devine. And was that before she rose to national prominence on the, on the stage there in, uh, at the Democratic National Convention in 64? Well, it was during the time that they were planning, they were planning that, that. Uh, I did not attend the 64 convention, but I, I raised funds mm -hmm. to send people. But uh, I, I knew of, of her work. I knew of the, the Shaq Proper issues. I knew of her attempt to register and vote and also assist others to register and vote as well. But I met her really in the planning phase of many of these activities. Rims, how did you first come to know Fannie Lou Hamer? Well, when I was working for the Delta Ministry up out of Greenville, um, we worked in Sunflower County as well as other counties, and she was instrumental in getting more voter registration going and in 1967 getting people to run for public office for the first time um, with a chance to win. Um, so I got to, to meet her then, you know, and I remember you know, sitting in her carport uh, on a stool, shucking peas and talking politics, <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing, uh, as, as she was inspiring people to get out and vote that year. And that's where, where it really all began for her, was when she attempted to register to vote, was it not? Oh, yes. She, but that, that was a couple years earlier mm -hmm. when she tried it in 62 or 3 and was thrown off the plantation and came then to live in, in the town of Ruleville. Uh, but she, was, she lost her job, her house, everything uh, just for attempting to register to vote yes. she was not successful that that first not, time not because of all the hoops no. that they made took people a, uh, a like her go trips, through yeah 
Yeah. Uh, Ms. Wright, what was it about her? Uh, there were lots of people involved in the movement back then. What was so different about Mrs. Hamer uh, that propelled her into a leadership position uh, to where ultimately she was, uh, she was there in front of the country? Well, just listen to Mrs. Hamer. Um, it was in her eyes. Um, you could see almost through, through, the, through her eyes. Um, she was committed, uh, and even though she only had a sixth grade education, she knew the issues. She was a well-respected individual, so consequently, it was not difficult uh, to get people to follow her, because they, here, here they see a woman who is making a sacrifice for so many uh, to try and register, to try and get others to register, being thrown off the plantation, going to jail, being beaten, and never losing her sense of purpose. And so it wasn't a fly-by-night thing for her. Uh, she internalized the issues of registration and what she could do to encourage people and to educate people on not only the right to vote, but the importance of the, of the right to vote. As you know, history teaches us in 1963, we conducted a mock election because we had not gained the right to vote at that time. So in 1963, uh, during the, the gubernatorial race, we ran Aaron Henry for governor, which was also one of our colleagues, and Reverend Edwin King for lieutenant governor. And even though we knew our vote didn't count, because of her constancy and the, and the dedication of so many others, uh, the mock election resulted in 80,000 African Americans coming out in mock polling places across the state to vote for those two individuals. And even though it didn't count, but what it did, it showed us the power. It showed us that if our votes could count, the power that we had to change things, to effectuate change. So this was in 1963. And so following, um, when we got the, actually got the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Acts passed, it let us know again that no longer could we sit idly by and allow people to make decisions for us because it gave us the opportunity and the right to make decisions for ourselves. And Mrs. Heyman was a very, very instrumental part of that. And, of course, when those three women stepped out, and we just saw their pictures a few minutes ago, when they stepped out um, uh, in Washington as a, a trio, uh, everybody knew that these three women meant business because our, men, our women had to cover and protect our brothers and our fathers because they could not step out the way that they did because of economic uh, catastrophe. So it was the women, and of course you probably are familiar with the film, uh, Standing on My Sister's Shoulders, from which that clip was also included. Um, but it was, it was the women who really made the movement work. Mrs. Hamer was a singer, and of course she sang a lot of her pain away. And even when she was in jail and beaten by black prisoners, uh, from the back of the jail, you could hear her singing, This Little Light of Mine. And everybody up and down the jail, the hallways of the jails, would, would um, join in in singing that. Because, see, they can't take your singing from you. They can take your rights, if you will. But they cannot take that inner soul of you from you. And Mrs. Hamer exemplified the inner soul of an individual. Rims, talk for me a little bit about the, uh, the impact and the importance of her testimony at the 1964 uh, convention, why that was so significant. She talked about the, what she had endured in the South uh, as just a regular citizen of the South, what it was like for an African-American woman in the South back then, uh, presumably to an audience that had not heard a lot of these stories before. Why was that so significant? 
I think it was for the first time that many people came to understand what the dangers were. That, I mean, in those days, it was not just segregation. It was not just you couldn't use the drinking fountain or try on a pair of shoes before you bought them. It was real danger. Ms. Wright, was that that speech that she gave before the Credentials Committee, was that was that a turning point not just in the, the committee structure or the, the, the convention structure, but also in the, the movement itself? Absolutely, because again, these women stood on principle because they were offered two seats, two non-voting seats. They were offered two seats. At large, or yeah. and, and what, would, what was it she said, we didn't come all this way for, for, for no two, two seats? seats. Yeah. That, two was, seats. that was uh, from Unita Blackwell, because if these women coalesced and got together and said, well, what must we do? And so uh, Mrs. Uh, Ms. Blackwell uh, asked Mrs. Hamer, Mrs. Hamer, what are we going to do? And Mrs. Hamer say, we came here with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. We will not accept these two seats. Two seats do not represent the, the people that we have brought along with us. And so then the next year, four years later, then, of course, they were seated. But again, it took courage for these women and people to come together to try and make change. And of course, we have now followed that through the first black president. And so actually, uh, the stance that they took then ultimately resulted in, some years later, America electing uh, the first African-American president. So the, her impact and the power that she had years ago, we're still talking about her today, aren't we? We're talking about her when she's been dead 50 years, probably, and almost 100 years old. Yeah. And so this is the kind of impact that people's lives need to make. When you are serious about a commitment, you just can't do it because it's the popular thing to do. You, I've been to jail. I've been shot at. I've been tear gassed. I've had my life threatened and the lives of my children threatened because I was involved in the Madison County Movement. And Reverend Barber knows that very, very well. But you see, you can't stop because the fear of death. And I knew at any point, just like her life could have been taken, so many other lives were taken, and so many other lives could have been taken. So we not only lived it, but Reverend Barbara, we lived through it, and we lived to tell it. So we have to tell these stories. This is not something we do because people think it's a nice idea. We do it because we're committed to teaching our children and our grandchildren and this world about the sacrifices that people made, not necessarily black people, because Reverend Barber's been in jail more times than I can tell. But he, he, never stopped, he never stopped because he was committed to a cause which was right, and it still is today. Rims, if, if Fannie, Mrs. Hamer were still here today, if Fannie Lou Hamer were with us today, what do you think she would be most concerned about? Well, I think that we'd be looking for and we always are looking for a new generation to come along and set the agenda. And some of the young people in Black Lives Matter are doing that. And I think that's important. And, you know, in 64, we were led by young people. I mean, Fonzie was a cute young lady then back then. <laughs> Aren't you kind? <laughs> and still is, of course. Uh, but it was young people who really led things and made things happen. And that has to be today. I mean, Ms. Hamer would be looking for the young people to come forward and set 
the new agenda for today. Ms. Wright, what do you think that Mrs. Hamer would be uh, would be concerned about if she were with us today? I think Mrs. Hamer would, would expect for those of us who live through it to continue to try and create teachable moments. Um, in my capacity as an independent um, consultant, and I have an opportunity to teach and lecture students from junior high, high school, college, and university levels. And sometimes when, I'm, when I hear people talk about this, they say, well, girl, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. They don't even understand the genesis hmm. of that That's statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think we have to create teachable moments, because I was teaching a boot camp in, in Canton uh, last year, and someone made that comment. I said, I said, young man, I said, stand for me. I said, do you know, know where that comment came from? Well, I just heard somebody say it. I said, then let me teach you. <laughs> and then and I just so happened to have on my DVD player some clips of Mrs. Hamer, Mrs. Devine, and some others, and I put her face on the screen. And I said, do you know this, you know this lady? I've seen her face, and this is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, who actually coined that phrase. I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's when you have gone as far as you can go, and you think that you can't go, as we say, another further, another day. Somehow something rises up inside of you and said, hey, you can make it. You've got to make it because people are depending upon you to make it. So we have to create and find teachable moments so that our intergenerational uh, group will know, know our history and their own history and be in a position to carry that history on as well. What do we know about the years between uh, the, the convention in particular in 1964 and the time of her death, which was more than 10 years later? What did she do after sort of rising to that, um, I won't call it the pinnacle, but to the, 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 the national spotlight? Well, she concentrated on building up things in Sunflower County, primarily. She had the Freedom Farm. She, you know, got people together to to grow vegetables and to raise pigs so that they could have food. She worked to get people registered to vote across the state. She helped build up the party, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and then in 68, combining and coalescing with the Loyalist Democrats to actually be seated at the Democratic Convention. Uh, so she was deeply involved in all that that stuff, but she fought for the rights of people to not be hungry, to not be ignorant, you know, for the school systems to to really respond to the needs of the children, so that we could have a better community. Mm-hmm. But do you think that she would be satisfied that that we have come where we need to to be in, in that regard, in Sunflower mm-hmm. County, in any of the surrounding counties in that part of we the state? Have, we have made so much progress that it's wonderful, but there are still gaps, hundreds and thousands of people left behind for whom life has not changed, who are just as poor today as they were back then 50 years ago, who are living in hovels that you and I would not live in, which we would call uninhabitable, which are often defined as uninhabitable, but people are living in them. Uh, Housing is still a big problem in Mississippi. There are thousands of people who are hungry in Mississippi. There are other things that need to be changed. You know, we have 
some Medicaid issues to make sure that people get adequate health care that have to be addressed. We should have a change in the state flag so that it represents everyone. Um, there are lots of things that could be done that I think Ms. Hamer would be on the front line fighting for. Ms. Wright, what do you think she would think of uh, Sunflower County and the surrounding area today? Well, again, to your question, you see, Mrs. Hamer did, didn't realize that she was making the kind of history at that speech that, that she ultimately and consequently made. So she would continue on the path that she was on, as Reverend Barber said, voter registration, even though we consider that speech to be the pinnacle, the mm -hmm. apex of her life, that was one of many. It, it, the, fact, uh, the fact is she had a national and probably an international audience at that time, but she didn't see that as, as some great thing she was doing or saying. She just knew that she had to rise to the occasion. And the reason Mrs. Hamer was chosen between the three women, Mrs. Anna Devine was, was, it was educated, as well as Mrs. Victoria Gray. But, but because Mrs. Hamer could command your attention with her voice, with her eyes, with her passion, she was chosen to speak before the Credentials Committee. But she didn't think she was doing something so ostentatious. She just knew that this was part of what she would do on a daily basis. And so on uh, daily, her life continued on the path that she was already on and which was continued voter registration. She ran for public office later on. Senate, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so she was continuing to not only run for office, but to encourage others to run for office. Because, see, once we got it, it took us a little while to get this voter registration thing. It took us a while. But once we got it, once we understood that we could command change just by getting the right to vote, can you imagine going to the registrar's office and being given a two-page, 21-item questionnaire, asking you how many bubbles in a bar of soap, how many feathers are on a chicken, and how many jelly beans in a pound of candy, just to, are you a communist, just to register and vote? And so these were the, the kinds of things she would have continued to work on even at 100 years old. Mm. She would have been telling us, man, now look, y'all babies, y'all go out there and look, you know, I, you know Mama Santa Luna got to her, but look, y'all got to go out there and fix that stuff. So that's what she would still be doing. She would, in a, in a wheelchair or a cane, y'all yeah, take me out here to this rally. Just let me just sing a little song, this little light of mine. Because she was, because it was in her. And see, once, once it's in you, once you get it, you cannot pretend that you didn't get it. And so Mrs. Hamer would still be continuing in the way that she possibly could to uh, enlighten, encourage, and educate our people as to the... Um, uh, the uh, the kinds of challenges that we have had to overcome and not let those things slip away that are continuously, little by little, being being uh, taken away. And so she would say, y'all rise up now. Y'all got to get up. Get up. Rise up. Swansea Brown Wright, Reverend Rems Barber, thank you both very much for your time on that issue this evening. And thank you. Thank you. We are out of time. Don't forget, you can watch the program on our website, mpbonline.org issue. And we invite you to join us again next Friday night here on MPB for another edition of Ad Issue. Good night. but also she helped people across the state of Mississippi and across the nation. She endured a violence and threats 
and through it all, she kept her eyes on the prize. She kept hate out of her heart, uh, and she challenged America to be a better nation. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964 went to the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and they challenged the lily-white segregated delegation of Democrats from Mississippi. And, and we went the movement. So she grew up with an idea that she wanted to improve her life chances and the life chances of the people in her community. Her main role was that she was a civil rights worker. And, and so one of the primary responsibilities as a member of SNCC was voter registration, but, but, but she did more. She established Freedom Farm in Sunflower County. Uh, she fed people. Uh, she clothed people. She did those things that you are admonished to do, provide clothing and shelter, and, and she did that for her community. and Violent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. She was also instrumental in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, where her testimony opened the country's eyes to the oppression of African Americans in Mississippi. Tonight, we'll hear from people who knew Mrs. Hamer, but first, we hear from historians at the Fannie Lou Hamer Institute for Citizenship and Democracy at Jackson State University, in their own words. She was a sharecropper, and she was influenced by her mother and her father. She was also a biblical scholar, so she was really concerned about how can you provide relief for the oppressed people? How can you provide relief, relief for the people who were mired in poverty? So she was concerned about those issues all of her life. And she often said that she didn't exactly know how to get involved in the movement, but she saw things that were happening across the country. So when, it's, when the civil rights organizations came to her community, she immediately uh, part partook of their activities and got involved in Thank you for joining us. I'm Wilson Stribling. Welcome to another edition of At Issue, where we discuss and debate the critical issues facing the state of Mississippi and how these issues impact you. Tonight, we take a look back at the life and legacy of a civil rights icon, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, who would have turned 100 years old on October 6th. She went from picking cotton in Sunflower County to commanding the nation's attention during the civil rights movement. She helped organize Freedom Summer in Mississippi for the student non Welcome back, and uh, we're here uh, to close out our African American History Month programming, and uh, we, of course, uh, focused on uh, Miss Fannie Lou Hamer of uh, Mississippi in the last segment, and uh, we want to remind our listeners that uh, you can have access uh, to this program uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. Uh, you can also uh, read the Pan African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with the music of Dinah Washington, a collection uh, of her recordings. This is Abayomi Azigawe uh, signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Now 